0: I'll uh, go over announcements and then update you on a couple of things. So we've got some good things to uh, hear about tonight. Um, Announcements. Where's my announcement sheet from the other day? Uh, Just a reminder, this Saturday we're going to have the webinar for Logos Bible Software. Logos is a great tool. There are several people in the congregation who have it. This is going to be recorded so it can be viewed again and again, which is always helpful on things of this this nature and that uh, the connection information is going to be posted on the news page of the deanbibleministries.org website and so that way you can go there click on that link information because we're recording it we can't do one long recording of of the whole session from 8:30 to t- to 2:30 or 3 we're going to break it up and so there will be four links on the website, one for each session, so one for the 8.30 to 10.30 session, one for the whatever, it goes from there to lunch, and then the two for in the afternoon, and so uh, people will need to sign up for that, or just click on that to go. Each time we finish a session, we'll close out the meeting and, and, and reboot, restart. Okay. Uh and then information is getting ready to be sent out on the DM two seminar, so look for that in your um in your e- email inbox and also anything else? No? Okay. I just got back from Albuquerque. Charlie Clough and I met at Houston Hobby Airport Saturday. I mean Sunday night. Flew out to Albuquerque to uh, just find out how things are going with the seminary to check on on George. There's nothing quite as important as boots-on-the-ground intelligence. And unfortunately, I think that because of George's illness and cancer, that, that contributions to Chafer, we've been fairly stable for several years. and They really dropped off about 20%. Or, or so this last year, and I think that's because there's been a, a somewhat of a lack of communication. George been preoccupied fighting his cancer, and people just didn't know what's going on. But the seminary, just like a church, isn't just the product of one man. Uh, Ch- Chafer is continuing. A lot of good things are going on, and we're going to be sending out some information on that. We were really pleased. Charlie and I came away exceptionally pleased. One of the things that's happening is we've entered into a partnership with uh, hoffmantown baptist church where georgia's been going to church for the last several years hoffmantown baptist church is a very large church it's a it was a church of about five or six thousand and when the uh elders hired the current pastor the and it's a southern baptist church but it's not like your normal southern baptist church they wanted a man to come in who would teach the bible And so the attendance of the church dropped from 5,000 to 1,500. And George connected with the pastor, whose name's Eric, Eric Christensen, and began to mentor him. Uh, Eric's a graduate of Liberty uh, College, Liberty University, and seminary, and has some training, but really didn't have exegetical skills, teaching skills, concept of that in the pulpit, Apparently, And George really has been working with him and his exegetical skills and his teaching of the word from the pulpit has dramatically improved and increased. And the church has grown. It's back up to about 3,000 people. They gave us an offer three or four months ago, Chafer Seminary, an offer that they had uh, a lot of empty space at the church. And they would give give us rent-free office space and classroom space in return for providing some training for their, their people. And so we talked through this, met online a couple of times with their, uh, with their elders, and everybody decided this was a, a really good fit. We had lunch with them yesterday with Eric and with a couple of their staff members, and we, we just came away thinking that that was very, very good yesterday. The pastor is getting ready to go to Ukraine, doesn't know Jim Myers, but he's going over there for a week to, teach at a, uh, at a summer camp, and, you know, in, in the world of there are no coincidences in the plan of God, one of the movers and shakers on the board of elders at this Baptist church is very well known and knows a lot of people, really connected in the Albuquerque area, and he is the husband of a woman I got to know on that APAC trip to Israel a year ago in May, and Susie was here in Houston last week for that APAC, uh, Christian leaders, leaders Summit. So, you know, when I look at things like that and I think, you know, I don't know what God's doing here, but He's obviously bringing some connections together. So this is, this is all really good. And, and some other positive things that have happened. We've had, we had one student who's, uh, talked a couple of times here at Chafer Conference is Nate Percher, Nate's graduated. He's teaching at a, at a mission school down. I believe it's in Colombia, maybe it's in Nicaragua. But Nate has uh, has finished uh, the first part, part one of a two-part uh, Greek grammar that's going to be published online. And the, the man who's been teaching, I don't know whose name I can never remember, uh, who's been teaching Greek for it's just incredible. Several people have told me he had the largest library of Greek grammars and Greek tools west of the Mississippi, uh, Glenn Riddle. Glenn has been working for many years with um, an organization teaching Chinese, taking the Word of God into China. That's his real vision, and so he has recently resigned from Chafer Seminary and has moved to Thailand for his base, uh, taking the Word of God into China. Knowing and perceiving that that might happen, one of our students, Levi, whose name I, last name I don't remember, but Levi was just a whiz at languages. I taught him via a uh, online hookup here when I was teaching Mike Smith, Orlando Salas, and a couple of other guys a basic uh, first year Greek here. Levi was part of the classroom electronically and did a great job. He has excelled at Greek. He went ahead and took all of his Greek and Hebrew through the fourth year, and he's the only person I know outside of a couple of probably Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Michael Rydelnik, and he's still a student, and he's read the whole Hebrew Bible through in Hebrew. And I don't know anybody else who's done that. He is a language genius. And he did that, he took all those classes as much as he could, as intensely as he could because he he understood that Glenn was probably going to be leaving so that he could position himself to be a Hebrew instructor for Chafer Seminary. This is tremendous stuff. This shows there's great hope, great future for Chafer Seminary, and I, we need to communicate that to people because... We need to get the donor base back, and we need to improve the financial situation because it's sort of fallen off a little bit, and we need to get things back in order. We have to train pastors for the pulpits. We get requests at Chafer monthly from churches who are looking for pastors, and there are many pastors who graduated from Dallas in the 50s and 60s, and some even in the 60s who are, I mean, some even in the 70s who are retiring. And those pastor those pulpits are going vacant, and they can't find people, pastors to replace them. You take a pastor who graduated from Dallas in the '50s or '60s, and you try to replace him with somebody who graduates from Dallas Seminary today, or Talbot or uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary or uh, uh, Ted's uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago. And the people are just, it's, it's, it's horrible. You want to find out how bad it is, talk to Bryce. Bryce was on the pulpit committee when they were looking for a pastor when I went up there. And they, what did you throw, 140 resumes in the trash, something like that? They, they couldn't even define justification. And, and so we're in serious trouble. We have to, if we believe in a teaching pulpit ministry for our children and our grandchildren, then we have to put our money where our belief is and support the seminary. I'm not giving this as a fundraising message, but that's just where we are. And I know this goes out to a lot of people. We have to really get behind behind the seminary. And we have great things that we're looking at. Charlie and I talked through a lot of plans, things that we can't, uh, we haven't finalized yet, we can't make public, but, but a lot of things are going to be taking place. And we're encouraged by all of them. So with that... Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our study tonight and continue our study in dispensations. And uh, by the way, just an update on George. He's just on a, it seems like he's on a long, slow decline. God can reverse that at any time, but he has a kind of cancer that's not aggressive. Uh, Sandy disappeared, but she needs to correct that in the prayer list. It's not aggressive. Some of the treatment is, there's no known treatment for this kind of cancer. And yet, yeah, the treatment is, and Charlie and I are both privately now i 'm sharing that don 't tell anybody okay. <laughs> are of the opinion that the treatment is worse than the the, the cure is more damaging to george 's health than the disease, and that 's why he 's in such exhaustion a lot and and in difficult straits, but we went out to dinner last night, his voice was strong he had a great showed a great sense of humor um he was doing great but but he's just skin and bones i mean he was skin and bones 18 months ago and he's worse now so we really need to pray for him and uh, encourage him and he's encouraged by the prayer so uh, let's keep keep that in, in in mind all right we'll have a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Father, we're so very grateful we have immediate access to your throne of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave himself for our sins. And Father, we're thankful that we can bring these requests that we brought before you this evening in prayer meeting before before you and know that you knew of them from eternity past. We continue to pray for George and for Chafer Seminary. We pray for George's health and we pray that you would intercede and and he would recover and recover his strength to be able to lead the seminary. Father, but if not, we know that your plan marches forward and we pray for guidance and direction for the men on the board of Chafer Seminary. We thank you for the provision that you've given us for so many positive things that are taking place which indicate that there is a future and a plan and a purpose for the seminary and we pray that we might be steadfast in pursuing that. Father, we thank you for this church and the congregation here and their support for the teaching of your word. And Father, as we continue our study on dispensations, we pray that you would help us to uh, see how your plan intersects in the Word of God so many different ways from, from age to age, from dispensation to dispensation, and the outworking of your plan and purposes in human history. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're continuing our study on God's plan for the ages. Uh, This is a study on dispensations, how God administers human history through the different periods of time that designate his plan, all of which revolve around uh, revelation. Now, tonight we're going to look at spiritual life of the church age, but as we go forward, I want to go back and look at this basic chart on dispensations. We have two basic ages in the Old Testament. An age is distinct from dispensation because an age contains or may contain multiple dispensations. We have the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. Under the age of the Gentiles, the first dispensation is that of perfect environment. It is based on a creation covenant mentioned in Genesis 1, 28 to 30, Hosea 6, 7, other passages that I I gave, There is a, excuse me, I read, okay, I fixed this this afternoon, I thought, oh well, we'll keep going. There should be another horizontal green line that somehow disappeared from the slide that comes right underneath here that goes all the way across called Responsibility. The responsibility was to fulfill the covenant. Their failure was that they disobeyed God. They ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the penalty was spiritual death. That began a new dispensation of conscience. You have the Adamic covenant the covenant. The responsibility is animal sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice. The failure was evil and the increase of wickedness in Genesis 6, 5 through 6. And the punishment, the judgment was the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. Then we have the dispensation of human government established by the Noahic covenant. The responsibility is they were to fill the earth their failure was that they gathered together to make a name for themselves against God, and they built the Tower of Babel. And the judgment was the confusion of languages. That's all in the age of the Gentiles. At that point, the only group you have on the earth are Gentiles. And they don't have a canon of Scripture that we know of. All we, may, all we know of that there might have been is some tradition handed down uh, through father to, father to son. There's an indication through the terminology in Genesis, these are the records of, and that might indicate that there was uh, some form of revelation, but nothing that we know of for sure. Then God God determines he's no longer going to work through the human race as a whole, through the Gentiles. He will work through uh, Israel, and he's going to work through, wait a minute, no, I know I'm right. okay, I'm going to have to go back through all of that anyway I worked on this this afternoon and had it much corrected. Everything was working, and so I'm a little frustrated that a couple of things have disappeared and I don't know why they disappear. Okay, let's get back to where we were. So we have the age of Israel, the age of Israel is really divided, also divided into three dispensations. You have the dispensation of the patriarchs established by the Abrahamic covenant. They were to stay a distinct people, separate from the pagans around them, and they assimilated, Genesis 34. And then you have the Egyptian bondage in order to forcibly keep them separate from the nations around them. Then we have the Mosaic law, and they were to... Uh, Obey the law, but they failed to obey the law, so they are scattered and taken out. The Mosaic law ends with the coming of the Messiah, the Messianic age. Jesus appears as the Logos, the ultimate revelation of God. The new revelation demands a new message. They are to accept him as the Messiah. They reject him as the Messiah and the result is there's a judgment of Christ on the cross, and then the fifth cycle of discipline takes place in A.D. 70. Then we have the church age. This is what we're studying right now. This is an application of the new covenant, but the new covenant is not yet in effect. The message is faith alone in Christ alone. It's the gospel. Most will reject Christ, and the judgment that comes is the tribulation period. The church age ends with the rapture of the church, and this will be followed by the tribulation, although the rapture doesn't begin the tribulation. It just precedes it, and we don't know how much time is there. I pointed out last time that a key verse and a key chapter for understanding the church age is Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Uh, We read, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This baptism into Christ is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. This never occurred in history before the beginning of the church. No one in the Old Testament was baptized into Christ because he had not come yet and died on the cross. The baptism is into his death. So if he hasn't died yet, there can be no baptism of the Holy Spirit into his death. We're buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That new life that we're supposed to walk in that should characterize our, our, our Christian life, that is, our Christian way of life, is built upon what? What does the text say? It's built upon the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that identification with Christ in his death. This never happened before. It didn't happen to Adam, didn't happen to Abraham, didn't happen to Moses, didn't happen to David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Nobody in the Old Testament had this. But at the moment, you and I were saved, were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we can walk in newness of life. Nobody else in history, no believer in history prior to uh, prior to AD 33 and, uh, and, and the Day of Pentecost, could walk in this kind of new life. That's why this next section we're looking at in dispensational th- in the dispensational theology is on the spiritual life of the Church Age. It is totally distinct from anything that went before. Last time I pointed this out in the diagram, that on the left side, in terms of the eternal realities, that we are identified with Christ. And we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is the foundation. The baptism by the Holy Spirit starts the church age in Acts chapter 2. And when the rapture occurs, the Holy Spirit, as the restrainer, and we'll study that, is removed, and this this is why there's nothing like this afterward. Tribulation saints are tribulation saints, they're not church age believers. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit like we do. They're not baptized into Christ. Their situation is is part of the final seven years of the age of Israel. It's not the same uh, spiritual life as the Old Testament because they're after the cross. But it's not the same as the church age either. So there's a progress in Revelation and a progress in God's plan of salvation so that they have a distinct type of, of, of salvation that's based on faith in the cross, the completed salvation, but they don't become part of the church. If they were baptized into Christ, they would become part of the church. So the church is gone. So this has to be understood. So what we see in terms of the characteristics of this unique spiritual life of the church age is the Holy Spirit does five things for every believer at the moment of salvation. And there are some distinctions here. Now, there was regeneration in the Old Testament, but it doesn't carry with it all of the facets that we now have in this newness of life that's mentioned in Romans 6.3. They move from spiritual death to spiritual life, but they don't have all of the assets that come with that in regeneration in the New Testament. This is uh, key passages, or Titus 3.5, "...not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit." Now, the Holy Spirit was still involved in regeneration in the Old Testament, but there's nothing else in terms of a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Another passage is John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Jesus has just told Nicodemus that he, unless he's born again, he can't enter into the uh, kingdom of, of God. And then Nicodemus says, well, how do you get born again? Do you go back into your mother's womb? And Jesus then distinguishes between a material birth, that which is flesh is flesh, and a spiritual rebirth, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You don't see the wind, but you see it, what it produces. You see its consequences. You see what it causes. In the same way, you can't, uh, uh, everyone who is born of the Spirit, you don't see the Spirit, but you see the consequences of what the Spirit has done in terms of uh, regeneration. Second thing that the Holy Spirit does is the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. This is seen in passages like 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Second 2 Timothy 1, four, and Romans 8, 9, and 11. 1 Corinthians 6.19 states that the Holy Spirit is in us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. In 2 Timothy one fourteen, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Then we have Romans 8, 9, and 11. Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit never occurred in the past. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon the judges, it came to the judges, but the Holy Spirit doesn't enter in in this indwelling sense of creating a dwelling place for the indwelling of of God the Son. And so this is another distinguishing factor in the spiritual life of the church age. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came upon the leaders of Israel to enable them to fulfill their role as a theocratic leader, as a leader in the kingdom, so that Saul could lead well. But Saul disobeyed God, and so the Holy Spirit was removed from him. The Holy Spirit was given to David so that he could rule well. The Holy Spirit was given to uh, Deborah was given to uh, Gideon was given to Jephthah was given to uh, Samuel but not in an indwelling sense but to enable them to have military victory over the enemies of Israel so it's never in the Old Testament in a for a sanctifying purpose it was always for the purpose of fulfilling their function as a uh, as a theocratic leader Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there again emphasizing that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then we have the sealing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Again, this never occurred in the Old Testament. Key passages are Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30. In Ephesians 1.13, we read, In him, that is in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit seals us. And that, that seal in the, in the ancient world, you would have a signet ring that a, that, that a man would have that would indicate his signature. And so if he had to sign a document, uh, they would put a wax seal on the document and then they would put the impression from that signet ring on the seal. And this shows a sign uh, of ownership. It's like a brand if you're from Texas. Uh, that commun- might communicate a little better in terms of the Old West. Today we use the term branding in terms of the identification, the label, the name of a particular company. So the branding of Campbell's is always related to, to soup. Uh, the branding of, of many other things, Hershey's is related to candy and, and chocolate bars. And we know their logo and we know what that means. In In, in the Old West, when they would brand a cow, they would tie the cow, hold them down. They would heat up the um, uh, heat up the branding iron, and then they would burn that brand into the hide of the cow. Now, there may be rustlers that would come along later, and they might modify that that, uh, that brand somehow so it would look from the outside as if it had a different owner. For example, you might have something simple like a uh, an o bar you 'd have a, a a circle or circle bar you 'd have a circle with a bar over the top and then somebody might put an additional circle there and it would be a two circle bar and it would indicate it was owned by somebody else. The only way you could really tell that the brand had been changed was that you would have to uh, kill the 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 Animal and skin it, and then when you reverse the hide, you could see that the that the brand had been changed. There are a lot of Christians who are like that; they become saved, and then they never really follow the Lord. They get away into uh, sin and carnality the rest of their life, and they look like they're still an unbeliever and it 's only when they die that you realize that actually the Satan had tried to change the brand but the original seal was from God the Holy Spirit. So I thought you all all would like that. So that's a great illustration. We are branded by the Holy Spirit, and even through your own carnality or volition, you might try to change it, but you can't change it. We are sealed forever by the Holy Spirit, who's called the Holy Spirit of promise, because the promise is that we will be saved, we will be resurrected, and go to heaven after we die. And so... Uh, this is the promise that, that, uh, with which we are sealed. Ephesians 4.30, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is when we ultimately realize our glorification. Now, the fourth thing that the Holy Spirit does that's unique for the church age believer is the one we mentioned already, which is the baptizing or the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, somewhere in the early 50s, around probably 52 or 53, some 20 years after the cross, after the day of Pentecost when the church began, he wrote, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's an aorist tense. It's a past tense indicating we, including himself, and the carnal, arrogant, reprobate, Corinthians. He's not talking to a bunch of mature believers in that epistle. He's talking to a bunch of spiritual losers who are operating on their sin nature in carnality. And so he says to them, we were all baptized, past tense, into one body. Whether we're Jew or Greek, slave or free, we've all been made to drink, to imbibe of one spirit. Now in, in Acts one five. This was predicted by Jesus. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized. Now, this is right before the Day of Pentecost, about ten days before the Day of Pentecost. So, this is in 33 A.D., which is ten, or excuse me, twenty years before Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So, in A.D. 33, Jesus is saying this is future. Of course, he was talking about what would happen on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. In Acts chapter 11, Paul says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit... I mean, this is Peter describing what happened at, uh, with the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. Uh, Peter said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. At the beginning of what? Us could only mean those who were gathered in this room where Peter's giving the report, which would be the apostles. At the beginning of what? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry? No, that wouldn't work, because at the end of Jesus' time on the earth, just before the ascension, he said this coming of the Spirit was yet future. So it can't be the beginning of the ministry with Jesus. It has to be the beginning of the church at the on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts eleven sixteen he quotes from he quotes from what Jesus said in Acts one five, so in in these situations we know that the Holy Spirit has done these four things and one more the giving of spiritual gifts. I have this slide in there twice. Let me no that was verse just verse seventeen. Let me go back to that. Verse 17, Acts eleven seventeen, 17, uh, Peter said, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could withstand? So he says what Cornelius and the Gentiles received was identical to what they received at the uh, beginning on the day of Pentecost. Now the fifth thing that the Holy Spirit gives us is spiritual gifts. These are distributed to every believer at the instant of salvation. You may be three years old or four years old and you get a spiritual gift, to pastor, teacher, or evangelism, or giving, or helps, or administration, and this develops only as you develop and grow uh, in your spiritual life. And as you grow and mature, this will begin to manifest itself. But if you don't grow and mature, it doesn't show up. Uh, there's a big trend among certain church growth uh, Promoters that you have to get people to know their spiritual gift before they can grow, and that's just putting the cart before the horse. We have to, as we grow, our spiritual gifts become manifest. We're all supposed to function in all these different areas: encouraging one another, teaching one another, praying for one another, giving. All of these things are part of everybody's spiritual life. But some people just have enhanced abilities in the in, in specific areas where they're gifted, and so. Uh, This is part of the spiritual life for the church-age believer. So this gives us these five elements, regeneration, indwelling, sealing, baptizing, and spiritual gifts distinguish the church-age believer from any other believer in history. They're not, this isn't present for the tribulation saint, not present for the Old Testament saint. It distinguishes us. God gives us more than he's given any other believer in all of history. So this brings us to going back to our chart here. We have our eternal realities and our temporal realities. At salvation, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we are in Christ no matter what decisions we make, we continue to be in Christ. That defines and describes also our potential because the power of the sin nature has been broken. We're regenerated, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and then we are initially filled by the Spirit. But when we sin, we lose that feeling. When we are filled by the Spirit, it's also referred to as walking by the Spirit. But when we sin, we quit walking by the Spirit or walking in the light, and we're then out of fellowship and walking in darkness. So let's look at the next section. The first thing we covered already, that's, that's just the... Uh, distinctives of what the Holy Spirit does for every believer in the church age. The second point related to the spiritual life of the church age believer is that spirituality and carnality are mutually exclusive. This is such an important point. If you study Reformed Reformed theology, which is the theology of Calvinism, the theology that is consistent with, with covenant theology, They believe, that because they don't emphasize the role of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the church-age believer, they're really emphasizing a life of morality. They're going back to the Mosaic Law as the precedent for the church-age believer. And this is what gives them a foundation really for legalism. We live in a world today where the younger generation, I'm talking about 20-somethings and 30-somethings, are being called Reformed and Restless. This is a big trend. They, they are very much attracted to Reformed theology. This has uh, some some unintended consequences in terms of the that, that generation's support of Israel, but that's beside the point of what I'm talking about tonight. They're very attracted to Reformed theology. Reformed theology has always been very antagonistic to the charismatic movement, but the trend among the reformed and restless is they're trying to find more meaning in their Christian life so they're opened to the spiritual gifts. That means assigned gifts, speaking in tongues and that kind of a thing. So this goes to, goes together. And they don't, because of the influence of postmodernism, which says there are no absolutes, they don't like dogmatic theology in the sense that they don't like hard and fast uh, answer saying the tongues movement is wrong. They, they reject that. You, well, we have to be open. Uh, that's the influence of the culture on their theology. So they, they believe when it comes to the spiritual life because of the reformed view of the spiritual life is that well, whenever we they'll say, you do a lot of things, and you know you have mixed motives. Part of it is you want to serve the Lord. Part of it is you know it's good for you, so it's partly selfish and partly to serve the Lord. Well, remember, Jesus said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if you're doing it from mixed motives, it's carnality. But they'll say, no, you, you can it can be a little bit from the Lord and a little bit you're serving yourself. And so spirituality, you can be spiritual and, car- and, and carnal at the same time. And they don't have a distinction between walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh, which is what Galatians 5, 16 to 18 emphasizes. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. He makes a very clear distinction. It's one or the other. But that's not how that approached that. Uh, Paul also talks about walking in the light or walking in darkness. It's one or the other. It doesn't take a whole light to illuminate a room. There are many places now, but I remember when I was a kid, the biggest cavern that people talked about was Carlsbad Caverns. If you were from Texas, you'd go to Longhorn Caverns up by Marble Falls, and they'd always take you into some big room deep down in the bowels of the earth, and they would turn off all the lights. And see if you could see your hand in front of your face, and it's so dark you can't see anything in front of your face and then then the uh, the guide would usually have a would light a match, and it is amazing when you're in that deep a darkness that if you light a match, how much it illuminates even a large chamber underground, and how much you can see from that one match you know it's either light or it's darkness, a little bit of light. Means it's no longer in darkness. It's now illuminated. So these, these metaphors that the scripture use are very clear in teaching it's one or the, one or the other. So we have these passages like 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, where Paul is telling the Corinthians that they're still carnal. They're still living on their sin nature. So he's not able to talk to them as spiritual, as those who are walking by the Spirit, he has to talk to them as carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, in the English translation, it doesn't come across real well, and so a lot of people think, well, well, if they're, they're carnal, that means a spiritual uh, baby. It's really talking about spiritual immaturity. But the Greek word there that's translated a babe in Christ is the word napios. Now, napios in some places is used as a straightforward term, but it's usually a term that in English we might say crybaby. It is a pejorative term. And it, he's, not saying, he's not talking about a, a, a brephos a, or a technot in Christ. He's talking about a napios. You're just a little whiny baby who hadn't figured it out yet. So he's being a little bit sarcastic, maybe a lot sarcastic. And he talks about how he's fed them with milk of the word, not solid food, but they're not able to receive that even to this point. Because they're out of fellowship, they can't receive the word. It's very clear that's what he's saying. And even now he says you're still not able to receive it because you're not walking by the Spirit. And that's what verse 3 indicates, for you are still carnal, carnal, is from the latin word carne meaning meat and if you know spanish and you talk about chili con carnage chili with meat i went to a great mexican restaurant last night in albuquerque by the way very good i love new mexican mexican food For you are still carnal, you're still fleshly. That would be the uh, better modern translation. You're still walking according to the sin nature. Where there's envy, strife, and divisions among you. And the next three chapters, he delineates all the divisiveness, all the divisions, all the envy, all the mental attitude sins that are going on in the uh, Corinthian congregation. And so he says, where these things are taking place, are you not carnal and behaving like Mere men are only men, that is, without the Holy Spirit. You're just living on your own power and your own resources. So it's very clear that Paul is talking here about the distinction that you don't just operate in the Christian life of the church age on your own energy, your own effort, your own power. You have to walk by the Holy Spirit. says the same kind of thing in 1 John 1, 6, and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness... This is not the kind of darkness you have in your house at 3 o'clock in the morning because you can still see a little bit. This is the kind of darkness that you have deep in the bowels of Longhorn Cavern or uh, mammoth caves or something like that. You're walking in darkness, and you lie, and you don't do the truth. And 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, Perfect light, brilliant light, not a shadow in that light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The foundation for cleansing is the death of Christ. And the third point in terms of our unique spiritual life is that the Christian is no longer subject to the Mosaic law, but is under the higher law of spirituality. In the Old Testament, They didn't have the Holy Spirit to strengthen and enable them in their Christian life. They haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, so there's not a break with the power of the sin nature. But in the Christian life, we have this higher law. It's not just morality. A lot of unbelievers can be moral. It goes beyond that. It's supposed to be produced by the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit. So we're under the higher law of spirituality, as described in Galatians 5:18-23, Romans 6:14-15, and Romans 8:2 through 4, Romans 10:4, and 1 Corinthians 9:21. All of these passages indicate that we are to live our life by the Holy Spirit. The result of this is that the Holy Spirit produces in the believer the character of the incarnate Christ. Notice it's not the character of the divine Jesus because those are divine attributes. It's the character of the humanity of Christ who is the one who lives as a man facing the problems of life that you and I face. So the character of the incarnate Christ produced enough. Galatians five twenty two to 23 lists the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. Against such things there is no law. Fifth point, the Holy Spirit is God and cannot sin. Therefore, the believer who is filled by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, cannot sin under the status of spirituality apart from human volition or ignorance. Now, let's turn to this first passage, 1 John 3, 9. 1 John 3, 9. This is one of the, for a lot of people, this is one of the passages that just stumps them in Bible study. But that's because we don't know how to read 1 John. 1 John 3.9. 1 John 3.9, John says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I would suggest from knowing everyone here that we all believe we were regenerate. But I would also suggest that within the last two hours, we've probably all committed some sin, at least one. If if the surface meaning here is what this verse means, then none of us are regenerate because we've sinned. So either that's not the meaning of the text, or we're all unsaved. Now, if we hold your place there, and you go back to 1 John 1, John says in First John one eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, wait a minute. In First John one, he's saying that that we can't say we have no sin, obviously because we continue to sin. And in First John three nine, he says, "Who's ever been born of God does not sin." See, John contradicts himself. The Bible isn't in agreement. Let's close our Bibles and go home and give it up. No. That's because we need to understand how John writes. And when John writes and he uses this phrase, whoever has been born of God, he's not meaning simply whoever is regenerate. He, what he means, if you do a list of all the things he says about whoever has been born of God, he, what, it becomes apparent that what he is saying is whoever is living in light of their regeneration, they're walking in the light. They're walking consistent with the with their new nature in Christ. If you're not walking in the light, you're walking in darkness. You're walking like you are a child of the devil. You're not walking as if you've been regenerate. So when you are uh, living as if you ha- have been born again by God and are a child of God, you don't sin. And... This is the same thing that Paul says in Galatians 5.16 when he says, walk by the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if you're walking by the Spirit, that's tantamount to abiding in Christ. And see, we have that same uh, terminology here in 1 John 3.9 where it says, for his sin remains in him. That's the same word that's translated abide. It should be translated abide for consistency here because... It's used that way down through this section. For example, in verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. That's what he's talking about. The principle is laid down in verse 6. If you're abiding in Christ, you don't sin. If you're not abiding, if you're out of fellowship, you're going to sin. If you're walking by the Spirit, you don't sin. But if you're walking by the flesh, you do sin. So that the person who's born of God and the way he's using that is the person who's living as if they're uh, regenerate, they don't sin because the one who is born of God is living as one who abides in Christ. And so that's what 1 John 3, 9 is emphasizing. So when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin in that relationship. It's only when you choose to quit walking by the Spirit that you default to the sin nature. And and then we start sliding down that whole path of of different sins. Sixth thing that we see, characteristic of the church, Christian life of the church age believer, is that any kind of production, any kind of works in the Christian way of life depends on the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not just morality. That's why it's difficult to assess what we've done that really has eternal value and what doesn't, because we, sometimes we're not sure if we were in fellowship when we did something. We can pray in fellowship, and we can pray when we're out of fellowship. Psalm sixty-six eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If you pray when you're out of fellowship, it doesn't go any higher than the ceiling. But if you confess your sin and God forgives you and cleanses you and then you pray, then it's in the power of the Holy Spirit and God hears you. So there's a distinction. That you can witness to somebody in the power of the flesh and they might even get saved because God knows how to, how to use even the truth of His Word because the truth of His Word isn't dependent upon whether or not you're in fellowship or out of fellowship. You can teach the Bible in the power of the flesh, And God can still use it because it's the power of the word, not the power of the preacher. Not whether or not he's in fellowship or out of fellowship. But if I'm out of fellowship, it doesn't accrue to; it's not divine good. It doesn't accrue to my spiritual life or have value for eternity. But if I'm walking by the Spirit, then it does. So the issue in the church age is that we have to live our life in dependence upon the Holy Spirit... And he's the one who produces the works that are uh, described as gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When we're out of fellowship, it's described as wood, hay, and straw. It doesn't become evident which is which until the judgment seat of Christ. Now, under the seventh point, we see the results of the filling of the Spirit. When we are walking by the Spirit and the Spirit is filling us with His word, then we learn to imitate Christ. <coughs> in Ephesians 5:1, Galatians 4:19 and Philippians 1:20. we imitate Christ. God is trying to build Christ's character in you. That is that why we are being conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8:28 to30. Second, we're to glorify Christ, glorify Him. He is the one who ultimately gets the credit for what takes place in our life. John 16:14, John 7:39, and 1 Corinthians 6:19 through 20. We do all things for the glorification of God. That's why Christians, above everybody else, should do everything that they do in life with excellence. That we should have a work ethic that surpasses everybody else. We live in a culture today, where in a lot of, of businesses, employers are pulling their hair out because they want their workers there at six o'clock, and they drift in at six thirty or seven or or later. They're not dependable. They're not consistent. And if you're a believer and you're there every day at 6 o'clock, you're the one who's going to get promoted. Everybody else is going to be irritated at you because you get promoted because you have a good work ethic. You show up, you go to work, you do your job, you don't get distracted. You're not on Facebook most of the time during the day. You're not tweeting everybody about what you're doing during the day. You're focused on the job and doing what you need to do. And that glorifies God. We work to glorify Him, not to glorify our employer. We uh, uh, one res- another result of the filling of the Spirit is we come to understand the Word. We can't just understand the Word on our own. You can understand the Word to a certain level on your own, but in terms of fully understanding it and putting it together with other scriptures so that it really fills out in your soul, uh, that has to take place under the filling ministry of God, the God, the Holy Spirit. He fills us with His Word. Fourth thing is He gives us He power... We're witnessing. Acts 1 8. Jesus told the disciples that when the Holy Spirit came, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the uttermost part of the world. The Holy Spirit would empower them in their witnessing. This is also described in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 through 5. He gives us assurance of our salvation. Now, He's not verbally communicating, He's not whispering in our ear, He's not saying, You're saved and you need to know that. But he gives us that assurance through the Word of God, that sense of confidence in that, that we are saved, we are God's child, and we cannot lose that salvation. And he, it's, a, it's an inner sense of confidence. It's not new revelation. He strengthens our worship, enables our worship. Philippians 3.3 3 and John 4.24, Jesus predicted that time would come when we would worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So we need to be in fellowship. That's why we always start Bible class with confession so that we know that we are rightly related to God the Holy Spirit so that our time has value, spiritual value, for eternity. Prayer. Ephesians 6.18, compared with Psalm 66.18, Ephesians 6.18 talks about we we are to pray, and this is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. We help other Christians. Galatians 6.1, this is done through encouraging others by those who are spiritual, those who are in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. And then the last two, we fulfilled righteousness demanded by the law romans eight two through four romans ten four romans three thirteen eight walking by the spirit, the Holy Spirit produces experiential righteousness inside of us, and then lastly, it produces transformed character described as fruit in galatians five twenty two to twenty three All of that emphasizes that the Holy Spirit has a distinct and unique role in the church age. Eight, emotion and ecstatics are not characteristic of the feeling of the spirit. You often see this today in our, in our quasi-mystical evangelical movement, especially in the charismatic branch. They want to use their emotions as a barometer for their spirituality. And emotion or ecstatics, where you're so-called prophesying in the Spirit or speaking in tongues. This is not characteristic of the filling of the Spirit during the church age or any other dispensation. There's, ne- it's never ecstatics. In the Old Testament, when a prophet was empowered by the Holy Spirit and spoke, that's not a ecstasy. Ecstasy is what happens to the, to the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the Asherah. That's paganism. Paganism always operates on emotion. Ecstatics is basically emotion-driving mentality. But in the gift of prophecy, God communicates to the intellect, to the mentality of the prophet, and then the prophet communicates to his audience. So it, it's, it's when, when we have dreams and visions, these, this isn't ecstatics. This is how God is communicating truth to the one who is going to be the mouthpiece for truth. And then the the last part is the culmination of the spiritual life for the church-age believer comes at the judgment seat of Christ when we are purified in preparation for the wedding ceremony, the marriage of the Lamb. So as the bride, we're the bride of Christ, as we're prepared that we are purified at the judgment seat of Christ in preparation for the marriage of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation 19.7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And so there's going to be the marriage feast at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And to her, that is to the bride of Christ, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, because she's purified at the time of the the judgment seat of Christ. Arrayed in fine linen. Linen was how the priests were garbed in the Old Testament. Arrayed in fine linen, this emphasizes our priestly role in the coming millennial kingdom. Arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We have been purified. Talking not about tribulation saints, but church age believers who are the bride of Christ. Verse nine, then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So this brings us to an end in understanding this unique spiritual life of the church age. Nothing like it before, nothing like it afterward. Now, next time when we come back, we'll look at the end of the church age, the rapture, and how that takes place, looking at the key key passages, uh, three key passages for the rapture. Then we'll conclude with the church age and its relationship to the angelic conflict, and that sets us up for going into the tribulation period. So we'll start getting into prophecy and prophetic studies uh starting next time as we move out of the church age into the tribulation period. Anybody have any questions? Got a question. Yeah we have a question from right. Colony in Nebraska. The question is can you please provide some verses showing Old Testament saints were regenerated? Where Old Testament saints were regenerated? Um, I'll have to look look at a few. I think that that there's one I don't can't come up with a reference right off the top of my head. But Saul is transformed into a new man, and I think that's in First Samuel chapter 10. Uh, you also have the recognition that if we're born spiritually dead, I mean, the basic definition of regeneration is you're made spiritually alive. So if we become spiritually dead because of Adam's sin, then in order to, um, in order to enter into life, uh, we have to solve a sin problem. Then we become spiritually alive. That would be the theological argument. The third example is is, uh, is Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus, and they're in the age of the law. They're in the age of uh, in the in the messianic dispensation, but it's still before the cross. And he tells Nicodemus that if he wants to enter the kingdom of of, of God, he has to be born again. So, Nicodemus at that point would be an Old Testament saint because you don't have anything else until after the cross. So those would be the three basic uh, uh, reasons why you have uh, regeneration in the Old Testament. Okay? That was a good question. And, and when we look at uh, progressive dispensation, there at least, I don't know where they've all ended up, but I know that when I was taking a doctoral seminar under Craig Blazing, And he was one of the three architects of progressive dispensationalism, uh, back in the 1980s. That he kept trying to float this idea before the class that there wasn't any regeneration in the Old Testament. But if there's no regeneration in the Old Testament, then that means that every person in the Old Testament that's a believer is still spiritually dead. And that's, that, that is a huge theological problem. And it also, you, you got a problem because, Nicodemus is still in that dispensation and Jesus tells him you ought to understand these things you have to be born again so Nicodemus is expected by Jesus to understand regeneration at that point okay let's close in prayer Father thank you for this opportunity to study these things and reflect upon them to realize what a unique thing we have in the spiritual life that you've given us And that we dare not squander it or waste it because you've given us such tremendous privileges and assets. And that all of this is is only learned through the study of God's Word. And if we don't study your Word, then we don't know what we have. And if we don't know what we have, we don't utilize it. And, And this is an act of experiential blasphemy by just ignoring and denying what you've given us. So, Father, challenge us to be more faithful students of your Word and more faithful in our implementation and application of these principles. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.